0: turn to Genesis chapter 1. For those of you with sore backs, uh, we are supposed to be getting a sample chair this week, <laughs> and uh, assuming, you know, all is well, we'll order a bunch of them, and maybe you can sit for a whole class. Who
1: gets the prize?
0: either Ben or Will. (laughs) It's going to have to be Ben because Will's out of town. (laughs) All right. So we're continuing our little series on the sanctity of life. Uh, Next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday, that day in our nation uh, where we set aside every year since, since 1984, where we set aside a day to focus our attention on the evils of abortion and the biblical response. And uh, this year I wanted to spend a few weeks on the subject. We started in Genesis 1. I will read from there again. So follow as I read. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And remember, this is the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea keep that open. If you uh, look back at verse 11, um, verse 21, verse 24, we see that the plants and animals were made to multiply, the text says, according to their kind. So if you look at verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Verse 21 God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. So again, we see the plants, the animals, they were made to multiply according to their kinds. But we are said to be made according to God's kind. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, or you could say according to our kind. So the creation of mankind is the apex of the creation week. Um, Nothing else is said to be made in God's image. Only mankind is made according to God's kind. Of course, this doesn't mean that we are God, uh, but it does mean that we are like God in some very important ways. So these are some of the ways we've talked about some of the aspects of what it means to be in the image of God. One is that we were made for relationship. God said, let us make. So we see God is in us. Uh, the eternal Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has existed in a loving relationship within himself for all eternity. We are like God. We are not a member of the Trinity, but we are created for a relationship. We are personal. And um, we're created for a relationship with God and with other human beings. It's a part of what it means to be in God's image. Another aspect of what it means to be in the image of God is that we are reflectors of God, we are imitators of God, and as we um, know Him truly and reflect what He is like in our lives, we are uh, as we imitate Him according to you know what He has said, we are reflecting something of what He is like. Another aspect of being in the image of God is value. All human beings have a unique value, a sacredness. Even because we're made in God's image, according to God's kind. And yet, another aspect of being in God's image is this in the ancient Near Eastern culture in which the Old Testament was written into, um, they thought that only the kings or the pharaohs were the images of God on the earth. So they were there as a sort of go between so that we could know, and it was a polytheistic society, many gods, so they were the images of the gods, and they were there to bring the will of the gods to the earth. But God speaks into that culture, and he says, no, all people are made in my image. All people are created to know me and bring my will about on the earth. Of course, sin, sin, uh, Destroys that, doesn't destroy it, it it badly corrupts that. Um, It it badly breaks God's plan, but it does not destroy and remove God's plan. In fact, Jesus comes to restore God's design for mankind. Unfortunately, many unbelievers uh, continue to reject their design and continue to oppose God's will. But as Christians, we are those who, by God's grace, we are forgiven our sins, we are restored to relation with God, so that we can know God truly, so that we can reflect what He is like, and not only reflect what He is like, but also to bring His will to the earth. We learn His will in His word, and um, as we do His will according to His design, we are, in fact, establishing his will on the earth. Last week, uh, we talked about this value aspect of being in God's image that even pre-born children, small though they are and, and though they need nurture from another human being, from their mother, they still have a sacredness about them because they too are made in God's image according to God's kind. This was just as true of us at conception. We talked You know, we know scientifically that we have all of our DNA at conception. Uh, We have all of that information that is going to allow us to grow into uh, who we are today. Even when we're just this tiny speck at conception, um, it is no less true just because we are small that we are sacred and in the image of God. So it's just as true of us at conception Uh, When we're just beginning to grow in our mother's wombs, as it is today, as it will be throughout our lives at every age and every stage. Today we're going to talk more about this value aspect of being in the image of God as we continue to talk about the unborn, Uh, but we also talk about other aspects of us being in the image of God as we consider our responsibility to fight for the unborn. So this is how we ended last week. Um... After facing the biblical and scientific fact that abortion is the murder of a human life and uh, facing some very alarming statistics, so uh, briefly, that about 60 million innocent human lives have been murdered from their mother's womb since uh, 1973, in the last 45 years since abortion was legalized in our country, that's 1.3 million a year, which is like if the entire Memphis metro area was murdered this year, And then next year, most of the Nashville metro area. And the following year, Knoxville and Chattanooga metro areas. On and on it goes for 45 years. Move on to the next and on to the next. Um, We see this as an astounding evil in our day. But I ended with the question, is it our problem? We see that it's a problem, a huge problem, but... um, Does God want his people to get involved in opposing it? The answer is yes, and today I'm going to show you how I know. Uh, We'll get more specific, but here's the big idea. We know that God wants us to be involved in the protection of the unborn, not only because they are his image bearers and thus have a sacred value, but also because we are his image bearers called to reflect what he is like and establish his will on the earth. So the first way I want us to think about this is uh, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, that in creation and in redemption, God is in the business of working from disorder to order, from chaos to cosmos. And we are his redeemed image bearers called to imitate him in order to reflect what he is like, called to know his will, even to bring about his will on the earth. So if you weren't with us a couple weeks ago, here's a brief recap of what we talked about. Um, In the creation narrative of Genesis 1, verse 1 is an overview statement of the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's telling us an overview of what the rest of the chapter is about. That's what God did. That's what Genesis 1 is about. Verse 1 is an overview of all that follows. And then in verses 2 through 31, it goes into more detail about the who... That's God, about the what, all of creation, and about the how. It doesn't tell us everything about how God created, but it does give us some insight about how. So one of the things that we see about how God created and one of the things that probably gets the most attention is that God created ex nihilo. He created something from nothing. He did not have anything to start with. Uh, He brought something that was not there Before he brought it. But another aspect of the how is seen when we contrast the beginning of the chapter from the end of the chapter. So if you look at verse 2, the earth was without form and void darkness over the face of the deep, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. So at this point, on the first day of the creation week, uh, God has already created something. We have reference here to the earth and the waters. Uh, The earth was there in some sense, but it says it did not yet have a form, and the waters are there in some sense, the spirit hovering over them. The idea here is that God brought the raw materials into being, but the thing that we are supposed to see at this point is that as of yet, it was uninhabitable. The earth was there in some sense, but it did not have a form, and it could not sustain life. In fact, the, the Hebrew term, to give you another good laugh, tohu wabohu is the Hebrew term. It sounds like a tribal chant or something, but um, it communicates something of chaos. So not only was the earth without form and not able to sustain life, but the raw materials were there in a sort of jumbled chaos. But then you look at the end of the chapter. After God created everything, verse 31, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's the opposite of chaos. At the end of the creation week, God had turned the chaos into a cosmos. Cosmos is a Greek word that simply means order, beauty, or harmony. So everything was in a formless state, a jumbled state of disorder, but what God was doing during the creation week was he was bringing order where there was disorder. He was turning the chaos, the jumbled raw materials that he had brought into being, into a cosmos, a creation of order and beauty and harmony. He saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very orderly. It was very beautiful. It was all harmonious, just as intended, all working together. Go ahead.
2: So, if the chaos existed in the raw materials,
0: when he's uh just right then at the beginning i mean i don't i don't know we don't really get that we just see there was something there no he, he there was nothing there until he he said it was there but it kind of what i'm what it does is verse one god created everything verse two we pick up and it's already we've already kind of gotten started uh The earth was formless and void. That doesn't mean that the earth was already there in the beginning before God got started. It means that he had already brought something into being um, that was there in some jumbled, raw form. But it doesn't mean that it was already there and he had something to work with. That would defeat what is taught elsewhere, that he created ex nihilo, something from nothing. So we don't get all the information, but it does show us some of how he developed throughout. Um, <clears throat> so we look at the end, the opposite of chaos, order, harmony, um, beauty. And, of course, this is not only God's pattern in creation. Now, when I say chaos, there was not a sinful chaos. It was, it was just a, um, it was not yet complete, right? And he was bringing order and completion throughout the week. So there was no, th- no sin involved in that. That's just a word I'm using for the um, jumbled raw materials he had brought into being and then was bringing order to over the week. But we know that this is the way God works in redemption as well, where Jesus was sent into a much greater chaos, which was the world under sin, in order to bring about the redemption and restoration to an even greater cosmos, an even greater uh, beauty and harmony and order as his redeemed image bearers will live with him, we will, in the new heavens and the new earth. So the point that I'm trying to make is this is a hallmark of how God works in creation and in redemption, working from disorder to order, from chaos to cosmos. And we are his image bearers called to imitate something of what he is like. Now, of course, this could be applied in a whole host of ways. It is generally a good principle for your life. You want to know how to be involved as a Christian? Look for the disorder and seek to work for order. Look for the chaos and work for cosmos. And I know there's disorder and chaos everywhere we look. You know, we've talked in here about like you just scroll your Facebook newsfeed, and it's you know it's overwhelming. It's hard to know. We we couldn't pray for everything, much less be involved in everything. I get that. And I don't know how we are to prioritize everything, but I do know this: two of the most wicked men in history, Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. Stalin of the USSR, Hitler, of course, of of Nazi Germany, ruled their nations for a combined of uh, a combination of about 45 years. That's how long abortion has been legal in our countries, for 45 years. And it depends on who you ask in terms of uh, how many people Stalin and Hitler killed. Uh, one of the most familiar numbers is that Hitler killed 6 million Jews in, in the Nazi concentration camps. But that's not all the people that he killed. I mean, there were a lot of other people that were killed that weren't Jews. Uh, Christians were killed and you know, in those camps. But then if you factor in just World War II deaths that he was responsible for, I mean, the number goes way up to something around 40 million, north of 40 million, um, that Hitler would have been responsible for. And how are we to know all of them? I mean, these are the best guesses that I came across. And um, the number that I saw for Stalin was around 20 million. He likewise, they had death camps, gulags in uh, Russia for uh you know Kazakhs for Russians for Ukrainians and wicked men and I don't know how accurate these are I, I think that we'll never know till we get to glory how many people um much like abortions in our country we have uh the best estimates that we have but certainly there are those that are not known and all of that but we've had about 60 million abortions in our country since 1973 uh That's over a 45-year span. And again, Hitler and Stalin ruled for a combined 45 years and were responsible for a very similar number of deaths um, under their regimes. So, as a nation, just in terms of this issue of infanticide, the, the mass killings of baby humans, we are as wicked as Stalin's USSR and Hitler's Germany combined. I know that there is much disorder and chaos, but surely, as God's people, we must prioritize the mass murdering of baby humans in our land, uh, seeking to turn the chaos and darkness and death and destruction into a cosmos, a habitation of life and order and beauty. So one way for us to think about this, uh, about our responsibility to engage the issue of abortion, is... That we are God's image bearers and and we see his work in this pattern of disorder to order, chaos to cosmos. It's evident in God's work, it needs to be evident in ours. Another way to think about this is that God is a God of justice and he calls us to be as well. So I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 10 so that we can think about this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verses 17 and 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food. And clothing. Now keep your spot there. We see something about God here. He executes justice, it says, for the orphan and the widow. And He loves and cares for the sojourner, which is a word that is close to our word immigrant. Um, what does it mean that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow? Well, it's similar to what it means when we say that He cares and loves for the sojourner. Uh, we don't tend to think about justice in this way, but when the Bible talks about God's justice, there are a, number of different, or a couple different ways that um, it is talked about. So we tend to think about justice in terms of retributive justice, retribution, uh, punishing evil. And this is one of the ways that God talks about himself and his justice. He is faithful to punish wrongdoing. So um, at the last day, we will either be punished uh, for an eternity in hell or we will be with God in heaven because we were punished in Christ on the cross. So you either believe in Jesus in the fact that he took your punishment in order to fulfill God's justice or you will be punished in order to fulfill God's justice. All sin is a capital offense in the courts of God and God is just to punish wrongdoing. So this is one of the ways that the Bible talks about God's justice. But another way that the Bible talks about God's justice is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and loves and cares for the sojourner. So think about it this way. There is this negative aspect of God's justice, uh, the fact that he punishes wrongdoing. And I don't mean that it's negative uh, it's, it's gloriously positive and holy in terms of his character. It's good. It's right. But it's negative for the wrongdoer. And, uh, but if, So if there's this negative aspect, there's also a positive aspect. And it doesn't have anything to do with punishing wrongdoing. It has to do with giving people their due as image bearers of God. And particularly is used of those that have a social deficit. A societal deficit or a societal vulnerability like orphans or widows or immigrants. God executes justice. He provides for them. This would include protecting them from their vulnerabilities. A widow is without the protection and care of her husband. An orphan is without the protection and care of his or her parents. An immigrant is without the protection and care of his or her homeland. But God provides for the protection and care that they need. And we are called to imitate God. Indeed, we are called to know God's will and bring His will about on the earth. So look back at the passage in in Deuteronomy. We're at verse 19. It says, uh, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore... For you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Of course, it's not only the sojourner we're called to care for. We go to the New Testament. We see a familiar passage in James 1.27, a uh, re- religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So we see there is this call in light of who God is and, and what God does to do the same, to imitate him, to know his will and bring about his will on the earth. Or we could say, God executes justice, and we are called to execute justice. God has shown that it is His will to do this. We know His will, and we're called um, to serve Him in bringing it about on the earth. Of course, we don't do this in our own strength. He has given His Holy Spirit to enable and empower uh, us to do just that. You know, this sheds new light on familiar passage, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love steadfast love and to walk humbly with your God? Why does God require this of us? Because he's a harsh ruler? No, because he is so compassionate to those who are socially vulnerable, to those who have a societal deficit. And because we are his image bearers, we are called to reflect him and to bring about his will on the earth. So what does it mean to do justice? Well, it may involve seeing to it that wrongdoers go get punished. But it would also involve providing protection and care for those in our society that are at a great deficit, that are socially vulnerable, like sojourners, like widows, like orphans. God requires it. Of his people, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love steadfast love, and to walk humbly with your God? And while we should not diminish the plight of any of the weak and vulnerable in our society, is there any more vulnerable than pre-born children? Is there any clearer application of those who are functionally orphaned in their mother's wombs because their parent or parents... Are going to kill them? we see that this is a major issue, but we also need to see um, this is our issue as the people of God. There are many societal issues, but it 's hard to imagine how this would not and uh, would not remain the societal issue of our time that 's really it for today we 're going to talk next week more about um, how to get involved. But uh, let's just pray right now. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. If you had not condescended to make yourself known, we would never have known you. Lord, you've revealed yourself in creation. You've revealed yourself most especially in your word. And thank you that you've opened our eyes to see it. We have all fallen short of your glory. We have all sinned and gone our own way. And we were hardened in our sin, Lord. Unless you had intervened, we would never have known you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for calling us to yourself. We are the most privileged of all people on the earth. And Lord, we see that this privilege comes with great responsibility. To grow in our knowledge and understanding of you and to uh, apply that knowledge in wisdom. Um, And we understand that that is nothing short of bringing about your will on the earth. Lord, that is what we need. We need your kingdom to come and your will to be done here. And so, would you do that in regard to this great evil in our nation? Uh, You have seen fit to place us here during this time in history and. Lord, I know that every uh, there are great societal evils, and we don't want to diminish any of them, but as we focus our attention here and we, and we are sobered by the statistics, we realize um, this is great wickedness. Lord, we ask that you would put an end to it. We ask that you would give wisdom to your church. We ask that you would teach us how we can move forward um, as a church, as the church at large, as individuals. We understand that applications will look different for different people, for different families, um, but we are asking, would you please guide and establish our steps? Would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? And, uh, Lord, we also continue to pray, realizing that this time of year, as the church testifies to uh, the wickedness of this sin, uh, we can often fall short in the uh, announcement of the good news And so, Lord, I pray for any, perhaps in here, that have uh, committed an abortion, Lord, would you bring the gospel to bear? Um, For those that are in our lives that we know uh, will struggle with this guilt and shame, would you cover their shame and let them know that their debts are paid in Christ? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you're not a respecter of persons and that you came to save sinners. And might that be a part of our uh, witness and testimony to the world in this regard guide and lead us we pray we need your help and uh, we do pray in jesus name amen all right we do have a uh, few to- a few minutes if someone wants to mention ask a question or say something we are going to talk about ways to be involved next week like life choices and um,
1: I noticed it Brian. I'm glad you mentioned your prayer Pray for people that have had abortion that yeah. have supported abortion that have paid for abortion I think we got to remember that too because well, one I know this is something we're almost afraid to talk about in our society because we're afraid we're going to be shouted down or yeah. called hateful or say we hate women or whatever it is and a lot of that probably comes from people that that have done this before or have been involved in it and with an abortion before, and we've got to remember that we've got to show them grace too, and, and realize that whether it's talking about abortion or homosexuality or whatever these hot button issues are in our culture, we've got to remember that to, sh- to share the gospel, we've got to let people know that those ish- those sins are no worse than our own sins. Right. Because I think people tend to have this mindset with non Christians that aren't familiar with with you know, Christianity at all have this mindset that if we say something's a sin, well, that means we're better than you, and we hate you, and we don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. And that's, I mean, obviously, the gospel,
0: that's the furthest thing from the truth. So. I agree. Yeah, you know, I tried to develop that further last week, um, as we talked about in detail, you know, how we know this is such a great evil, and biblically, it is wicked and sin, uh, murder. But... Anytime we're going to talk about that, we ought to also talk about the gospel. And we, it's hard not to diminish either. You know, we, we really do need to talk about what it is. Um, and yet we also need to talk about who Christ is and, and what he's come to do. And so I do think that's probably been a real weakness in the church. Um, we talked about it a little bit last week, but our, our witness has been Uh, Maybe even primarily political in regard to this issue. Uh, This is a political issue. I mean, it is a people issue. That's what politics is, you know. But it's not, it's first and foremost a biblical issue. It's an image of God issue. It's a Christian issue. Uh, It certainly works its way out into politics. But if we're going to have a consistent witness, we do, we have to get both sides right. I think
2: being Christians and saying abortion is bad makes us feel like we've done our part. And I think, I'm sure you're going to get more of this next week, but if you're talking with a woman, not that I've spoken to a woman that's going to have an abortion, if I'm putting myself in her shoes, what other options do I have? I feel like the church has failed women to support either through adoption or supporting them. And it's kind of like, that's bad, but we don't, good luck to you figuring it out and having multiple children and not knowing what to do. And I think, um, I think the church has a huge responsibility we continue to act like because these laws are in place that that's the bad thing, but it really is that we haven't given our resources to these women yeah. that don't don't have another alternative. It's mm-hmm. easy for us to say when we are affluent and can care for children. I think, why would you ever do that? But I, I think I'd feel really different if I'd already had a few children was pregnant with another and thinking, I, can, I, I can't do yeah. this and where do I go?
0: And when you understand that... Um we talked about this last week, but that Planned Parenthood, which is the largest abortion provider in our nation, is was designed to go into the African American communities. And I mean if you read Margaret Sanger and, and understand the vision of what she was about, I mean she was a racist and she wanted to kill black people. And she thought this is a great way that we can do it uh, systemically. Now that's why I always say that you know Planned Parenthood's at Poplar and Hollywood, not Poplar and Forest Hill, for a reason. It's that way in any community, um, and so even it would be easy for us to look at the Black community, with, you know, holier than thou, and with our noses turned up. How could you be so foolish? But when you when you understand how uh, dark it has been in terms of they've been fed lies, they've been lied to generationally and it is so much so that within that community it is not seen it's it's not seen as an option to give your baby up for adoption i mean they have to fight through so much you know personal opposition in their family and the options are abort or keep that's the options before you and so that's not right but it's just it ought to bring compassion for us to know that these women that end up in this big mess of sin they're faced with they're just faced with things we've never been faced with and um, it's easier on paper it's a lot harder when there's these deep-rooted family ties and and community ties the shame that will come along with this there's a lot that they're up against doesn't mean that it should change the outcome but it may inform the way that we seek to uh, engage the issue
3: our church and the church at large to to grow in our attitude with things like um, the the women's event um, addressing sexual sin that we continue to grow in our attitude towards sexual sin that there's grace, like Andy was saying for all sin, that we all recognize our own sin so that our churches are also places that are safe for single mothers who choose to parent um, because I know it can be very difficult to come into a church culture as a single mom and not know if you're going to fit in, not know how you're going to belong, um, and that's something that I think we can continue to grow in as a church, and we're already making, you know, steps toward that. Um, yeah. Because I think, you know, I, I don't I don't have a toe in the youth ministry anymore, haven't for a long time, but just um, from my own Youth days. I saw that as a real problem within the church mm-hmm. of young women who who don't know how to be in the church if um, if there's been an
0: unplanned pregnancy or aren't welcomed to be. I mean, you know, aren't loved in their sin and, and you know that that's a great point. And just how we respond to sexual sin um, is a part of this. You know, that's a good point. Um, Hey, while we have a couple more minutes, just because it's been everywhere and I want to talk about it.